How'd you like to go to the Old Testament for a few weeks? Haven't done that in a little while. It's two thirds of the Bible, isn't it? Yeah, there's some good stuff there. Uh, it's all about Jesus, even though his name doesn't show up. And I want us to really look into that uh, from some Old Testament passages over the next few weeks. Uh, I want to begin this morning by doing something that is probably going to cause a couple of you to send me an email. Um, I, I want to I read you a passage from God's Word that is very, very familiar to you, although you are not used to hearing it read at this time of year. You will know what I mean when you hear it. It goes like this. I don't even need my glasses. I think I know it. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, here's the question. About whom are these verses written? Who's the subject of these verses? Yes, that's the Sunday school answer is, is correct. They are, about, they are about Jesus, absolutely correct. But that might not be the whole story. You see, one of the general rules when you see prophecy in the Old Testament or in the New Testament for that matter, one of the general rules is to remember that if there's a prophecy that the prophet was speaking, yes, often to the distant future. And in fact, Isaiah is speaking here 700 years into the future about, about the birth of Christ. But the prophet also has to have a message for the people of his time. And very often there is what we call a near-term fulfillment or something that the people of that time would see and experience because the message is first for them. And a lot of, old, a lot of respected Old Testament scholars see in these verses a reference not only to Jesus, who was going to be born 700 years later, but to events closer to Isaiah's time and in fact to another king. In this case, a merely <clears throat> human king. And while this king could never be the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, this king, this, a merely human king who wasn't Jesus, could not possibly fulfill all of the exalted language that we see in Isaiah chapter 9 there, he would nevertheless be able to give the people of Judah a hint of what was one day to come. Certainly he would not be a mighty God. But he'd be a mighty king who would rely on a mighty God to defeat a mighty enemy. He may not be the everlasting father in the divine sense, but he would watch over and protect his people with fatherly love. His, his wise decisions would bring peace to a nation in turmoil. And in doing these things, this merely human king, while he, didn't, he wasn't the total fulfillment of these verses, he would still foreshadow the coming of the great future king, who of course we know to be Jesus the Messiah. Now who is this king? Who is this king? Because whoever he is, he must be pretty special. In fact, he is. In fact, the Bible tells us that neither before this king nor after him was there a king who trusted so completely in the Lord God of Israel. His name was Hezekiah. Hezekiah. He was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Most of you know that Judah was split in after the time of Solomon. Judah went, uh, Israel went into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was called Judah. And, and he was the king of southern Israel, Judah, around 700 B.C. And I think you will really enjoy hearing Hezekiah's story. And after a time of introduction today, um, we're going to spend the rest of July studying 
the reign of King Hezekiah. So what I'd like you to do now is turn to Hezekiah chapter 14. I've always wanted to say that. There is no book of Hezekiah for those of you who are filming. I'm not like, it's going to take you a while to find this one. Um, I think that's one of the things you can do to determine like the biblical literacy of your congregation is to see how many people look down and try to find it. So like hesitations 214, turn, you know, but we won't do that. The, actually, the, the, the story of Hezekiah is really spread over several books. It's in 2 Kings, it's in 2 Chronicles, and a lot of it's actually uh, in the book of Isaiah as well. So we're going to be referring to all three of those books at the very least over the next few weeks. But we're going to be in 1 Kings, I'm sorry, in 2 Kings today, and it's going to seem maybe like a little bit of a history lesson, but I think that's unavoidable. Those of you who get into that will really like this, but those of you who don't, uh, hang in there with me. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 15. We'll start in, verse, in chapter 15. 2 Kings chapter 15. <clears throat> Got to get there myself. We will not be looking a whole lot at Hezekiah himself today, <clears throat> but we need to set the stage for him. Uh, Hezekiah, and this history lesson hopefully will, will, will be good for us because Hezekiah came to the throne of Judah at a very pivotal time in that nation's history. Uh, and in a time that in a lot of ways is not unlike the time that we are living through right now in the United States of America. So um, go ahead and turn, when you get to uh, chapter 15, go to verse 32. Verse 32, and we will see this. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusa, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. We'll stop right there. This king, Jotham, uh, Hezekiah's grandfather, Hezekiah's grandfather, is not really a major player in Second Kings, but I wanted you to notice something very unusual, and that is that the nation of Judah, okay, the southern kingdom of Israel, the nation of Judah, actually got to have two good kings in a row. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament and about the story, you know, from Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, it's very unusual for, for, for it never happened to Israel. It only happened to Judah a couple of times that they actually got two good kings in a row. Uzziah, who had reigned for over 50 years, actually, <clears throat> and then Uzziah's son, Jotham. Again, almost unheard of to have leadership that that's good. And yet, and yet, things were not all that great in the nation of Judah, spiritually speaking. In fact, Isaiah said about the people of Judah at this time, and this is a verse that you know well because Jesus quoted it later on in his ministry. It's Isaiah 29, 13. It says this. Isaiah prophesied this. He actually said this about the people of his time. He said, these people come near me God speaking, these people come near me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. We call that lip service. That's what God was getting. So if you went through Judah and you asked anybody on the street and said, hey, what's your religious situation? What's your, you know, who, who, what God do you follow? They'd say, I'm a follower of, of Jehovah God. I'm the follower of the God of Israel. I worship him. He's my God. 
And they would go through the motions and they would do all the ceremonies and they would attend some of the feasts and they would listen to the prayers. And yet, for most people, that's where it stopped. There was no real devotion. There was no real obedience. They pretty much did what they wanted to. There was no real life change. And maybe this is the main thing. There was no real love for God in the nation of Judah. The people's hearts were far from him. Let me ask you something. If you're in a close relationship with somebody, are you satisfied with lip service or do you want to have a place in that person's heart? You know what, ladies, if you're married, do you want your husband to come home after work on the day of your anniversary and give you a few flowers and a peck on the cheek and say, well, here you go. I've accomplished my my duty for the year. Happy anniversary. Isn't that heartwarming? You know, when your kids move out of the house, when they're adults, do you want them to call you every week and then talk to you for five minutes and say, all right, I guess we're done. Talk to you next week, mom and dad. No, that's kind of heartbreaking, isn't it? How many friends, be honest now, how many friends do you have, if you're on Facebook, how many friends do you have there who aren't really your friends at all? How many friends do you have, in fact, you're not even sure who some of them are, right? A few, right? At least a few. Many of the people of Judah had kind of friended God, right? If you, if you looked on their profile, he would be there. But that was the extent of their relationship. How about you and I? You know, have, have we just friended God? Have we just kind of followed God, like on Twitter or Instagram? And we sort of message him once in a while, maybe when we're in trouble? It, or is there a vital love relationship going on between you and God, your heavenly Father. God tells us to love him with all of our heart. So what does it mean to do that? What does it mean to have a love like that? What does it mean for someone to have your heart? Well, it means you take delight in that person. You take delight in that person. It means you start to care about the things that that person cares about. It means that you hurt when they're hurting and you rejoice when they're happy. It means that you, you want to tell that person everything that's going on in your life and no good experience is really complete until you share it with him or her, right? That's what it means. It means that you want to go deeper in the, in the relationship and you want, to, you want to know this person in a more intense way. And it's not just a duty that, some, that you coldly perform knowing this person and, and loving this person and in the case of God, obeying this person actually brings you joy. You do it because it brings joy to your heart and excitement to your heart. God, God wants your heart. God wants your heart. That's what he wants your life to be like. But even though Judah had had almost 70 years of relatively godly leadership, and these were actually years of relative prosperity too for the nation. Maybe that was part of the problem, I don't know. But despite all this, they, they really didn't love God. They were just kind of going through the motions. That's what Isaiah says. And one big reason for that is that their worship life was all messed up. Their worship life had gotten all messed up. And that's largely because neither of these otherwise really good kings had removed these high places that we read about in verse 35. Now, we see the expression high places almost 100 times in the Old Testament. They're really an issue. So what are these high places? Well, these, these were places that you could have pretty much anywhere 
in Israel or Judah or anywhere else for that matter. They were, they were places you would go to worship your God and offer sacrifices to him. And they were high places in that they were usually places that were at a relatively high altitude on a mountain or at least a hill or something like that. Because when you were higher up in elevation, it made people feel closer to God. Now this practice of just setting up a place of worship at, at the highest place you could find had started with the Canaanites, the people that were there living in the land before the Israelites got there. But then what happened, David had nothing to do with them when he was king. But King Solomon had actually allowed some high places to be built so that some of his foreign wives could worship their gods there. And it didn't take long for this practice to catch on with the Israelites. And in, initially, they went to these high places and they treated them as a place to worship God. They would worship the true God there. So what's the problem with that? Why not just go worship God anywhere you want? Well, the problem was that God had specified very carefully centuries ago in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that one day a temple was going to be built for the Lord. And after the temple was built for that Lord, that place, the place where the temple was, which ended up being in Jerusalem, was the only place that should be allowed to go and offer sacrifices. And in fact, no matter where you lived in Israel, you had to go to Jerusalem, not just to sacrifice, but you had to go there with your family to three annual feasts, three times a year. Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And of course, if you didn't live very close to Jerusalem, it was pretty time-consuming and pretty expensive for you to make these trips. And so today we ask, well, why did God require this? It seems like a big burden. Why couldn't people just worship God you know, in their own town or maybe even in their own backyard. That would be better yet, right? As long as they're worshiping the right God, why, why go all the way to Jerusalem? After all, we Christians have a certain view of this, right? Because do we have to go to Jerusalem? I hope not. I've never been there. We can worship God anywhere because Jesus said that the true worshipers of God are going to worship him in spirit and in truth and that that place doesn't make any difference. Well, what what? Where do we get that? I think we have to realize what an amazing privilege that is for us as New Testament believers, that we can worship God anywhere. Unlike the Old Testament Israelites, we have God's Holy Spirit living inside of us, and that actually turns our body into a temple for worshiping God. We have the completed word of God that includes the gospel of Jesus Christ in a language that we can understand. What a privilege. We have the presence of the Lord here with us in a mysterious but powerful way whenever we take the Lord's Supper. We have the body of Christ expressed in the local church wherever we are and wherever we get together, whatever day of the week, whatever time we do it. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. Most importantly, we don't have to offer sacrifices anymore. Amen? Because Christ has become the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. So things are very different for us. But in the Old Testament, there was a reason that God wanted the Jews to go to Jerusalem to worship him and to sacrifice. It reminded them of who they were as a people and whose they were as a people. And as they experienced all the symbolism of the temple and the sacrifices, they were preparing for the day when God himself would offer a final, all-sufficient sacrifice for their sins. And, this is very important, it gave them an opportunity to experience biblical, God-honoring worship in the pattern that he had designed. In the pattern that he had designed. Let me explain that. This is very important. Because it is not up to God's worshipers to decide how to approach him. Either then or now. 
It is not up to God's worshipers to decide how to approach him. It is up to him to decide that. And what had happened over the years at these high places was that this this convenient kind of localized worship where you were able to kind of create your own worship experience ended up leading people to think they could just approach God on their own terms, however they wanted to. And very often, it very quickly led to the worship of false gods as well. But even when it didn't, even when it didn't, it resulted in a warped form of worship. Let me explain that. The way of the pagan nations in worshiping their gods was very different from the way that God's people were supposed to worship him. The God of the Bible invites you into his presence and graciously makes a way for you to approach him. The goal in your worship of God is to find joy in giving him glory. To find joy in giving him glory. The goal of pagan worship was very, very different Their goal was to get something from their God. That's what it was all about. To manipulate this God into doing your bidding. So maybe you needed help with a military campaign or or maybe uh, you you needed rain for your crops or you needed health for your cattle or maybe you just wanted to have a lot of kids or, or maybe you just didn't want this God to wipe you out. Either way, the idea of worship and sacrifice and the purpose behind it all was to buy this God off, as it were to get him on your side at all costs by offering just the right sacrifice or saying just the right prayer or performing just the right ritual. And if you got it right, if you did it right, then this God had to help you. He had to do it. He had to help you or he had to leave you alone maybe or he had to give you whatever you needed from him. And unfortunately, that's the way that God's people had begun to approach him and these high places were a big part of that. I hope that is not the way that you and I approach the real God in worship and in prayer because the God of the Bible cannot be bought off or manipulated. Even though we might very naturally, the way we think, suppose that to be the case. About a month ago, our grandson, who has by now, he's almost two years old, and he has figured something out. He has figured out that he is really cute. Um, and, and he, I was sitting on the couch and he walked over to me and he kind of put his hand on the, on the armrest there and he suddenly flashed me the sweetest, most angelic smile I have ever seen on any human being before. Right, right, the baby blues, baby browns in his case, like right in my face. As if I would never figure out that this had very little to do with his love for his grandfather and everything to do with the bowl of ice cream that was sitting on the arm of the couch between us. Brothers and sisters, that's not how we come to God. We don't get God to do our bidding by making ourselves look pretty in front of him or for him. We don't obligate him to bless us by doing good deeds or by saying just the right words in prayer or by performing the right religious activities or by giving a certain amount of money or by dropping the name of Jesus at the end of a prayer. You see, sometimes we Christians are tempted to do that. We're tempted to treat the name of Jesus as kind of a magic incantation so that if we tack in Jesus' name on the end of whatever it is we want, then God has to give it to us because we said the word. Do you know what? Asking for something in Jesus' name is, is not just a matter of putting those three words on the end of your prayer. In fact, I can't think of a single New Testament prayer that ends with the words, in Jesus' name, amen. Can you? 
Now, this is not to say that we shouldn't pray with those words, but praying in the name of Jesus means more than that. It means praying the will of Jesus. It means praying the agenda of Jesus. It means praying on Jesus' behalf in such a way that we are praying for what, for what he wants and not just what we want. And that's why the best of prayers, the best times of prayer that we have often include a lot of wrestling with God, submitting our will to his, seeking out his agenda for the situation we're praying about until our will and his will get melded together and then we pray with power in Jesus' name. To pray in Jesus' name is not to come to God with a list of demands or some desire to make God do our bidding. No. We come to him, we come to him at his invitation on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf as a child comes to his father knowing that because of what Jesus has done, God is already for us. He is already on our side. We don't have to get him there. And he is already inclined to bless us with whatever it is we truly need. That's where it starts. And this all becomes true because of his grace, not because of our goodness. We don't manipulate our God. But unfortunately, that kind of manipulative pagan worship is what the nation of Judah had fallen into. God had lost their hearts, and now he was becoming just pretty much just a means to an end. I'm gonna use God to get this, I'm gonna use God to get this. I'm gonna make God happy so it doesn't blow me up. Into this deteriorating spiritual situation comes a king by the name of Ahaz. Ahaz is Hezekiah's dad. And about the only good thing that Ahaz ever did was to give birth to Hezekiah. And of course his wife Abby did most of the work on that one. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Ahaz was both a product of the spiritual corruption of his time and the one person who did the most to accelerate it. He was probably the most ungodly king Judah had ever had, at least to that point in their history. In a few years, somebody else is going to come along and give him a run for his money. But at this point, he's the worst. Let me read just a little bit to you about Ahaz. Go to, stay in 2 Kings and just read from verse six, uh, chapter 16. Um, I'm gonna, I want to read you through 16, but I'll stop after 9 just to save time. But it says, In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David has done, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, we'll talk about them in a second, they came up to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. At that time, Rezin, the king of Syria, of Syria recovered Elath for Syria, drove the men of Judah from Elath, and the Edomites came to Elath, where they dwell to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Kir, and he killed Rezin. We'll stop there for now. Ahaz had absolutely no heart for the Lord, none. He was basically a pragmatist. 
He, he did what he thought would work with no thought for whatever God might have to say about a particular situation. And this included, by the way, and we see this more in, in Chronicles, it included worshiping other gods. And even, as it says here, and even more clearly over in Second Chronicles, offering at least one of his children and maybe more than one as a human sacrifice to gain favor with those gods. Unfortunately, Ahaz had come to the throne just as a dark, menacing shadow was being cast over the whole region by the expanding Assyrian Empire. Now, Ahaz's desperation here is kind of understandable because the Assyrians were a vicious bunch. They invented horrible forms of torture for their enemies that I wouldn't even want to describe to you today, except to mention that in the process they also invented crucifixion and they used it on children as well as adults. They would advertise their torture methods to their enemies as a form of psychological warfare, which they were masters of. They were by far the strongest military power in the Middle East at this time, and they were coming for Judah. They were coming for Judah. But first, they had to go through two nations that were to the north of Judah. They had to go through Syria, and they had to go through the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, these two nations were actually pretty powerful in their own right, and they had banded together to try to survive, and their first goal was actually to add Judah to their group. But they knew Judah probably wouldn't cooperate, and so their goal was to invade Jerusalem. They were going to depose Ahaz. They were going to put their own puppet king in his place on Judah's throne. And we read in Second Chronicles, we read there, that because Ahaz has no heart at all to trust God, God kind of takes the hedge of protection away from the nation of Judah and the Syrians come in, and the northern Israelites come in, and they start to take people captive. God wants Ahaz to see what happens when you don't trust him. Meanwhile, the Philistines are threatening from the west. The Edomites are attacking and moving in from the east. So Ahaz has a lot to deal with. And here's the crazy thing. God, at this point, steps in, and he offers to help Ahaz. Say, Ahaz, I've got this. Don't worry about this. I'll do this. And Ahaz turns God down. God sends the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz and he says, I promise you that these two kings will not take over. You will not be dethroned by the kings of Syria and Israel. In fact, in just a couple of years, these kings won't even exist anymore. And he says, Ahaz, I will confirm this with a sign. You ask for any sign you want and I'll give it to you. And Ahaz responds by saying, oh no, I would never want to tempt the Lord with a sign. I'm not interested in any sign. Translation, tell God to get lost. I'm going to do things my way. And as we just read, Ahaz makes a deal with the devil. He decides he's going to align himself with the Assyrians. He pays them off to do what they were going to do anyway, which is take over Syria and Israel, which puts them right on the doorstep of the kingdom of Judah. And then Ahaz does something even worse. And we didn't read verses 10 to 16, but Ahaz goes up to Damascus and he meets the Assyrian king there. And while he's there, he sees a really impressive, really cool looking altar. And so he decides he's gonna retrofit the temple in Jerusalem to kind of jazz things up a little bit by replacing the altar that God had specified way back in the book of Exodus. He's gonna replace it. The one the people would offer their sacrifices on. This was the first step for people to come and approach a holy God in worship. Ahaz is going to remove that altar to a different corner of the temple and he's going to replace it with a replica of this really cool looking altar that he saw when he was up in Damascus. After all, he thought, you know what? The Syrians were stronger than I was. 
So maybe they have a more powerful God. Maybe they're doing something to make their God really happy. So maybe I need, maybe if I can worship more like they do, maybe with this really snazzy altar, then maybe I'll get powerful like they were. And amazingly, Ahaz actually got the high priest, Uriah, to go along with him in this corruption of God's holy temple. And we know from Chronicles that Ahaz didn't just worship the Lord at this altar, he worshiped any number of gods. Not only that, but he encouraged the people of Judah to worship other gods as well. And instead of removing the high places, Ahaz had more and more high places built all over the land so the people could worship whatever gods they want to in whatever way they pleased. And in fact, in 2 Chronicles 28, we read that Ahaz ended up chopping up many of the original temple furnishings and then closing the door of the temple completely so people couldn't worship there anymore. This is the situation that confronts Hezekiah when at the ripe old age of 25, he becomes the king of Judah. So he's younger than Wes, okay? That young. (laughs) The spiritual life of Judah has fallen to an all-time low. Idolatry is widely practiced. The temple itself has been corrupted and shut down. The most powerful and brutal enemy Judah has ever faced is now perched at her northern border because his father has basically invited the fox to come in and guard the hen house, and now the fox is sticking his nose inside. Add to this the fact that Ahaz is still alive. When you do the math, one thing you discover is that the kings of Judah at this time had developed the practice of sharing the throne with their sons for a time. And it turns out that probably for the last 14 years, so ever since he was 11 years old, Hezekiah has been being mentored by his evil father. Now we don't know why Ahaz was deposed, leaving Hezekiah solely in charge. Maybe there were a few godly people left in Jerusalem who had enough influence to get him to step down. Or maybe Ahaz just gave up because things were so hopeless, I don't know. But either way, he's still hanging around. Oh, and by the way, partway through his reign, Hezekiah is gonna be diagnosed with a fatal illness. There is probably no king in the Old Testament that inherited a more hopeless situation, a more threatening and and complicated set of problems than Hezekiah. And yet, as we're gonna see over the next four weeks, God is going to use this young man to turn the tide. In fact, Hezekiah's obedience to God is going to extend the life of the kingdom of Judah by over 100 years. In fact, by 115 years, to be exact. And he's going to begin, as we'll see next week, by tackling this problem of corrupt worship. Hezekiah is going to be the first king ever to get rid of the high places. There have been good kings before. Asa didn't do it, Jehoshaphat didn't do it, Uzziah didn't do it, Jotham didn't do it. Hezekiah's gonna do it. Now as we wind things up today, it's probably not too hard to see some similarities between Hezekiah's world and our world today. A nation in decline falling into moral and spiritual corruption and decay. An increasingly dangerous geopolitical situation. A church that has at times embraced political power and compromised its witness, choosing pragmatism, whatever works at the time, over obeying the word of God. But maybe it isn't just the big stuff like that. Maybe this hits some of you closer to home. Maybe in our own lives, maybe in our own families, we're dealing with the spirit of compromise Lukewarm worship, a lack of prayer, lack of love for God, even a cold formalism that for some of us maybe is kind of Christian in name only. 
what Isaiah would have called lip service. Maybe that's invaded some of our lives, some of our homes, some of our families. Our time, our attention, our money, our plans, it's all turned toward other things while we kind of keep God on the sidelines and out of our decisions and we sort of worship him to make him happy, to buy him off. And we kind of message him once in a while when we're in an emergency. Maybe we call ourselves Christians but our hearts have turned away from God. If that's the case, how many of you here today would like to be a turning point? You'd like to be the one who stands up against this, this strong current of compromise in your house, in your family, in your world, in your community, even in your church maybe, and you stand up against that and you begin to be the person who turns the tide in your life and maybe even in the life of other people. How do you do that? Well, it's very tempting I really want us to understand this because this is hard, but it's very tempting when we read these stories in the Old Testament. And there's lots and lots of stories. There's, there, how many dozen great characters are there in the Old Testament that we read their stories and what they did, you know, all these heroes. And, and then we read these stories and, and we tend to pretty much apply them all in the same way, I think. Here's what we say. We find the hero in the story and then we try to be like that person. Right? Isn't that what the Old Testament's all about? Find the hero and then emulate the hero. So we should... We should we should be courageous like David and face our giants. We should be devoted like Daniel and live a life of integrity. We should be obedient and worshipful like Joshua and all the walls of our life will fall down. In this case, you might say, we should be uncompromising like Hezekiah and we can change our world. And let me say this, yes, there's a place for that. But that is not the main point of these stories for you to emulate the hero because these men, as godly and as faithful as they were most of the time, they are not the true hero of these stories. As we look at the life of Hezekiah, we're gonna see him being less than heroic at times. Yes, he's a man of great trust in God, but his faith is gonna waver and we're gonna see it happen. His pride is gonna get in the way. He's even gonna show us a surprising spell of apathy. But at the end, that's okay because Hezekiah is not the hero of the story. In fact, it's not even his story. The hero of the story is God himself. And in this whole series, what we need to do is to let Hezekiah's experience point us to someone else. After all, Hezekiah's greatest moments was when he took his own eyes off of himself and then got them onto God. So we need to do the same thing. And that's what will give you and I the chance to be used by God to turn the tide in our own situations. Not by staring at Hezekiah and trying to be like him, but by staring at Hezekiah's God and seeing who he is. The real hero of this story actually speaks in 2 Kings 19, 32 to 34. You can turn there, but I'm going to read it to you. The Assyrians are closing in to destroy Jerusalem. And God speaks up through Isaiah and he says, he says this, he says, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come into this city. He will not shoot an arrow there. He will not come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mountain against it. By the way that he came, by the same way he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Remember what Isaiah said? The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. God will come to the defense of his people. 
The one who trusts in him, it says in the Bible, will never be put to shame. God is faithful. He will not forget about us. He will come for us. As it says in Isaiah 35, 4, he will come and save you. He will come and save you. So what does God want from us? He wants our hearts. He wants your heart. He wants you to make him the delight of your life. He wants you to worship him and enjoy him forever. That's what he wants. Why should we give him our hearts? Well, if you think about it, he's already given us his. When he sent us the king of whom Hezekiah was only a mere shadow. When the real Prince of Peace, Jesus, came, he came willingly. He gave himself to us freely. He said, no one takes my life from me. No one manipulated Jesus into dying for us. No one manipulated the Father into sending Jesus into the world. And no one earned what Jesus did or convinced God to do it. No, the only thing that compelled Christ to die for us was his love. That was it. It was his love that held him to that cross even more than the nails that were driven into his hands and feet. God came to rescue us in his own time, in his own way, simply because he wanted to. Because he loved us. Just as he came to rescue his people from the domination of Assyria, he comes today to rescue you and me from the devastation of our sin and shame. Freely. Because of his love. Let me ask you something. Does that grab your heart? Does that grab your heart? Does that win you over? Let's pray. Lord, what a wonderful time of worship we had this morning. We give you our hearts, God. We know that our love for you is so weak. Our endurance is so puny sometimes, Lord. Our, our, our passion is so clouded. It's so, it's so, it can be so pathetic, Lord. And yet, God, you, you love us, and yet you gave yourself for us in Christ. And you've put your Holy Spirit within us and, and you have made a way for us to worship you in spirit and in truth. You have, you have provided the altar. You have provided the sacrifice. You have provided the forgiveness. You've provided the grace. You've provided the holiness. You've provided a perfect record of righteousness. You've provided a Holy Spirit who can, who can come in and, 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 and give us the power to obey and to do great things. Lord, you have, you have done everything that is necessary. You've given us all we need for life and godliness. And it's all to your glory and to your credit. All glory goes to your name, God. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us to respond to you by believing in you, by trusting in Jesus Christ. Yes, for salvation and eternal life and then for every single day. Help us as we look at the, at the life of Hezekiah and his reign over the next few weeks to look through Hezekiah to the one of whom he was only a shadow, to Jesus Christ. Help our, our, our eyes to be fixed on you. 
And as we see you, Lord, will you transform our hearts? As we understand you better, Lord, will you change our lives? As we are captivated by you, Lord, work in us and change us. Make us your people truly. In Jesus' name, amen.